Hello and welcome to Movie Challenge Accepted. I'm Jason. And I am Marco. And we're back uh, a little bit late because of the snow. We got uh, both of us live up in the Northeast yeah. and Arco and I were both shoveling out of our respective homes all, all night. Uh-huh. <laughs> Haven't finished yet. <laughs> no, mm. but we do have power and with power comes great responsibility and great responsibility <laughs> to podcasting, which is, uh, very, which is very, why we're very here. good. <laughs> Um, you had mentioned before we got on that you had something you wanted to bring up. Was it regards to the movies or uh, something? Actually, you know what? A little bit of everything. You know what, Jason? Uh, here on our uh, podcast, uh, Movie Challenge Accepted, we like to celebrate the successes uh, all around us. And I noticed that uh, uh, one of the successes out there is that uh, Spider-Man No Way Home has made it up to $1.7 billion and is the number six movie of all time in uh, worldwide gross. Also, I'd uh, love to uh, congratulate uh, the successes of uh, the teams that have, uh, the NFL teams that have drafted quarterbacks um, who, very young, like Joe Burrow, were able to get into the Super Bowl, where, whereas our teams, the Jets and the Dolphins, can't seem to get out of their own way. So uh, congratulations to them. But I think uh, most importantly, I think that uh, I'd like to say congratulations to you on having your first uh, work published and, uh, you know, for all those uh, those of you out there that aren't aware as of yet, Jason uh, is working on a publishing career as a writer and has had his first work called The Trunk published in a uh, neo-noir literary anthology called Rock in a Hard Place. So, uh, Jason, very, very uh, congratulatory um, wishes to you. Uh, I'm oh, sure thank that, you, man. Uh, I'm sure that is the beginning of uh, great things. And uh, for those of you that... Are, are interested you can uh, find it on amazon it's uh it's very well worth the the uh, small fee whether you buy it digitally or uh, you know if you if you like to have it in your hands uh, yeah, a little bit more but uh you can follow the misadventure as you call it of leo rosser and uh and see how it goes jason did a fantastic job so congratulations jason Thank you, man. That was very cool of you. I didn't. No uh, you no said no that you had something you want to talk about. I didn't think it was going to be that, but that's yeah. incredibly awesome. Thank well, you. you know, yeah. it, it's uh, the, the way that we've been uh, recording. We've uh, kind of missed a couple of different things that we could uh, always bring up. You know, great NFL games the last couple of weeks. The your magazine coming in the mail, so I didn't have a chance to uh, talk about it. So I wanted to bring it up and say congratulations to you. Looking forward to a lot more. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, You're welcome. Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a small jump to go from what you know one short story, which is what I'm at, to uh, Ed McBain's 1959 <laughs> novel uh, King's Ransom, mm-hmm. which, for those of you that don't know, is the inspiration for Akira Kurosawa's 1963 incredible police procedural, High and Low, which is what I threw at you this Mm -hmm. past week yes and uh, what's funny is i should have mentioned it last week when you when you challenged me with this film the way that you said um you know the famous akira kurosawa um director in japan as if I knew who that was, <laughs> and then and then you you brought up Ed McBain, you know, Ed McBain's uh, novel. I'm like, oh yeah, and, and I'm like, wait, I don't know who Ed McBain is. <laughs> so you know, uh, thankfully, after I got off, I was able to watch the film and uh, and uh, look uh, look back on uh, Ed McBain's career. Um, yeah, so uh, I just felt like uh, came out of left field, so I had to bone up a little bit on who those people were. 
Hey, that, hey, but that's what this is about, right? That's what we're here for. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, uh, McBain, um, to start with the book, McBain wrote a series of novels uh, in the 87th Precinct series back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, I think it well into the 80s, actually. Um, just police procedurals uh, back in the day, very short, punchy books. Um, you know, they, they have a particular style to them. Very, uh, I've read a few of them, and they're very spare uh, dialogue of the era, very much New York City of, in that time. Mm-hmm. And um, when I saw High and Low the first time on the Criterion channel, I did not know it was based on one of McBain's novels. But when I was watching it, and I don't know if you got the same vibe, mm-hmm. I just thought this, this feels so much like an American-style police procedural. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I could definitely see the influence of, if not the novel itself, which I, of course I have not read, um, but other movies in this genre from Hollywood at the time. Um, so it, I definitely d- did get a sense of of American um, film in in, the, in this particular movie. Yeah, and um, for those of you, because this is a slightly more obscure movie, I've given you a lot of obscure movies. This is one of the most ex- obscure movies. Yeah. It's it's uh, almost sixty years old. It's black and white. It's by a uh, Japanese uh, director, although arguably the greatest Japanese director of all time. Mm-hmm. And for those of you that don't know, uh, Toshiro Mifune, who is who was Kurosawa's probably favorite actor, who's mm-hmm. in a ton of his movies, plays a industrialist in Yokohama, Japan, right. who's son's friend mm-hmm. his chauffeur's son gets kidnapped right and he's approached to pay a ransom and the movie begins right what do you think uh, so off the bat i like to tell people that i definitely enjoyed the film um so starting off it is a black and white another black and white film that you've given me and yep. um out of you know for for whatever reason i'm i i you've been giving me a lot of subtitled films this one i didn't have to turn it on it was automatically subtitled which is uh, works for me i will say that this is how black and white should look i don't care that it's 60 years old i don't care that it's not as uh, technical as 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 today's movies are it was crisp. It was clear. I did not have to struggle to see anything. Shadows worked against the light. It was perfectly done, perfectly filmed. I'm not sure if that's the way that movies were done at the time or if this is anything um, specific to Japanese films, but probably the best black and white film I've, I've ever had to watch w- w- without straining my eyes. Yeah, I think um, Kurosawa, I mean, he, he had an incredibly long career and not everything he did was in black and white, but I think his black and white cinematography is just absolutely incredible. And I think the director of cinematography was uh, As- Asakazu Nakai and Takeo Saito. Um, I don't know them, but yeah, they did <laughs> incredible work on this. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know them well, either. Hey, they, des- <laughs> they deserve to get called out. No, uh, you're right. You're right. Absolutely. Um, so, as, far, as far as the what, what you were bringing up about the plot of the film, I loved how it started out. Who knew that women's shoes in um, post-war Japan was such a cutthroat business? Because that is what the main character, uh, Kingo Gondo, is an executive of. He's an executive of a um, national shoe company, I believe it's called, yeah. if, if I'm not mistaken. And... Uh, him uh, and a bunch of other executives are meeting and they're looking over shoes and they're talking about taking over the company and 
and, and all kinds of stuff. So he's um, he, he's he's part of that whole group. And short while later, you know, he's he is leveraging out the rest of the company. He's leveraging out basically his own for, fortune to be able to buy up the biggest percentage of the company so he can run it his way. He wants to make shoes his particular way. He doesn't want to deal with the people, the old man that's running the business now and all the other executives. Um, and and. Just as we learn that he has basically leveraged himself to the hilt without a penny left to his name, should anything go wrong, what happens? But, quote unquote, his son is kidnapped. Right. Except, except the twist is we find out that it wasn't really his son. It's his chauffeur's son. And we, he, he goes from saying, I'm going to pay anything without even thinking about what he's saying. I'll pay anything to get him back to now he's thinking well, I'm not going to pay anybody. It's not not my son, and it really brings up a, a a great argument. What would we do if we were in that kind of position? Yeah, because he goes from telling his wife, "I'll do anything," to now he has one of his employees looking at him and do. I mean, I'm not that familiar with Japanese culture or their societal structure, but it's clear that there's a a rank system, right. a, almost a caste system mm -hmm. at play, mm -hmm. because the show for doesn't really beg i mean he begs him but he's also kind of uh acceptance of whatever you do i'll accept please try to get my son back but i understand like there's clearly a, a like the name of the movie implies a high and a low and there are people that you know are at a certain position in society and that's illustrated by gondo's home which is literally high up on a hill looking over the rest of the city Right. And a great point about the uh, the home up on the hill. It's looking over a shanty town, really, is what you would call it, of, uh, again, post-war Japan. What's amazing is that although I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good with um, history and uh, World War II history and even post-war history, uh, really, I, I guess I was never really um, that clued in on post-war Japanese history and how those people were living. Um, so the shanty towns really kind of threw me off a little bit. So you know, people obviously were living, you know, in whatever kind of uh, ways they could to get, just to get a, a meal in their hands. You saw what kind of uh, uh, what kind of people were living in those shanty towns. And uh, to me, I think that that was, you know, when you say high and low, I really thought that that was the uh, where the title of the film came from: the highest people at the top and the lowest people literally at the bottom of of everything. Yeah, and it's amazing also how timely it is now because obviously there's a lot of conversation about uh, income inequality and wealth disparity and sort of the the gap between the haves and the haves nots, have and haves nots, and uh, it just kind of shows you that this is a story that just keeps getting told uh, throughout history and it's always kind of coming up. And yeah, Gondo is you know you face him, he faces that initial question that's put to him where you think it's it's just okay i'll pay to get my son back and immediately they twist it and then the movie kind of becomes a stage play for like the first 40 minutes and it's just in gondo's home right as as the police show up and they kind of try to figure out how to handle this but we don't leave his apartment mm -hmm. or not his apartment his home I, I want to say for like the first 40, 45 minutes, give right. or take. And, and it's funny you say that because I honestly got the impression that that's where we were, we were going to be staying the entire film. And, so did I. And I was wondering uh, if this was 
if this was going to work, um, if they if they really needed to be outside of the home to propel the 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 plot forward any. I'm glad they did, but looking back on it, I'm glad you actually picked up on that also because I was wondering if if, if we were going to see anything else and 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 I also had the idea that maybe it could have been somebody in the home you know that was yeah. doing this so that's so that's uh, another little twist maybe i'm not sure if it was intentional or not but i definitely picked up on that there was a possibility that it could have been anybody living in the home you know in his family or his um, his valet or maybe the, even the executives that were there earlier or yeah. any, of the, any of the policemen that had been in and out of the home for the first 40 minutes of the of the film like you said do you remember a mel gibson movie with gary sinise called ransom uh, yes, I do. Um, I, I do, but I don't remember the exact plot of it. So spoilers for Ransom, um, really good movie. If, as I remember it, I haven't seen it in a long time, but Gary Sinise plays the, the police Lieutenant who is brought in to investigate, uh, Mel Gibson's son's abduction. Right. And in the end, it's real that Gary Sinise is the guy who orchestrated right, it. Right, right, he's okay. in debt. Yes, I remember it now. And and he goes up, he, he's he's basically twists the twisted around and saying, "I'm not going to pay the ransom." And uh, yes, yes, okay, gotcha. So that having that movie in the back of my mind, which I haven't seen in forever, it's funny you mentioned like I thought maybe it was you said you thought maybe it was the cops. I kept thinking that this whole time, and it's because I've been sort of tainted not tainted but i've been influenced by 46 years almost of pop culture right. it, you know just i'm inhaling pop culture mm -hmm. all the time mm -hmm. that it's impossible to sort of separate one work entirely from another right. and uh yeah i kept thinking it was the same as you that there was going to be someone within the house but it very much becomes a different movie it's two hours and 23 minutes is the right. runtime, mm -hmm. and i Again, I first saw it uh, when it was suggested to me by the Criterion Channel. They had a neo-noir collection that I don't know if it's still on, but they had a bunch of great movies. Brick was one of the movies in mm -hmm. that collection, right. which we spoke about last week. Right. And it was suggested to me, and I watched it because I love Kurosawa, knew nothing about it. And like you, for the first 40 minutes, I'm wondering, are we ever leaving? Is, is this the movie? Like, mm -hmm. is this some sort of chamber play, like a staged play right. that, that was filmed? Our town. And then, <laughs> and then we go to a scene that while filmed 40, nearly, no, I'm sorry, nearly 60 years ago, mm -hmm. the money exchange on the train. Right. I thought was the whole movie changed for me when that when that kicked off. And I was wondering for, for some considering the movie you gave me this week, which mm -hmm. is full of spectacle. Right, right. I was wondering how you looked at a, a semi action sequence staged, you know, 60 years ago and how what your take was on that. I tell you what, it was it was gripping. It was exciting, and maybe it was because there wasn't too much action up until that point. But going on the plot, what we had at that point, seeing as how there needed to be a money exchange in order for the child to be released, I was definitely on the edge of my seat to seeing, one, how they were going to do this, and two, what was going to come next if, if the child was actually going to be um, you know, released safely and everything. Plus, I love the fact that the person orchestrating the whole kidnapping ransom really had thought of every little detail and and even and, and even the cops that you know that the police officers were 
quote unquote praising him. The fact that this, you know, this evil guy had had thought of everything, you know, uh, how smart he was. So uh, it, it really made for a tense, uh, a, a tense scene on the train. Yeah, I thought that the way Kurosawa uh, stages that with the uh, the cops throwing the money, or actually Mufune, uh, Tashiro Mufune, the Gondo character, throwing the money out of the window as the train roars over a bridge was the definition of the way to build tension mm -hmm. with like limited means because right. obviously it's 1963 you don't have the filming options you have you don't have cgi there's no computers there's no there's no thanos with an infinity gauntlet <laughs> running around oh boy you, <laughs> no there definitely are, isn't <laughs> No, you, you're constrained by what you can physically do and what right. you can physically shoot. Right. And the fact that they were able to pull that off in such a way, because I know in the novel, I did a little reading, that's a, a transfer that takes place on the subway. And I just thought the way they were, the way Kurosawa and his screenwriters um, were able to move this from New York City to Yokohama and to have it feel so... It, the movie feels so incredibly fresh, yes, but also yes. familiar. Mm-hmm. And the more you get into it after the money's exchanged, and then we kind of move into it, the second act, which mm -hmm. is the investigation. Right. And it becomes such a hardcore procedural mm. that it, it felt so familiar. And maybe this is why American audiences responded to it. It had great reviews when it came out. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because it speaks to something where American viewers do enjoy like just the, the procedural aspect. I mean, Law and Order has been running for what seventy four years now yeah, on TV. Pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I think th there's a large audience that likes to see how things are done, whether it's you know surgery on Grey's Anatomy or on Mash or yeah. um, you know how how murders are solved or mm. <laughs> kind of solved in the Hollywood world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but it, that that was the thing that th that drew me to this and that put it in the back of my mind is that the fact that this is almost this almost becomes three movies. Yeah, and and the second part of uh, the second act basically uh, really started after uh, after the one hour mark, I believe, when when the money was exchanged. There was still an hour and twenty five minutes left in this film, and <laughs> got, which is fine because. But what's funny is I kept on looking at the time, and I'm like. So much has happened. What more could we possibly squeeze yes. into this? But we, we were no like at the hour mark or, or at the at the beginning of the investigation, we were so far away from having having our answers. However, within a short amount of time, it's amazing the amount of work that these uh, Japanese uh, police officers did. They were able to. Uh, break everything down into the smallest categories and and er, there were groups uh, groups of two uh that checked every little lead and no matter how small it was they were able to basically construct what had happened and in the end who did it and uh you know and who helped and and, and how it was done one thing i, f I found to be very uh, amazing to me and it's something that we don't really see in a lot of police uh, procedurals movies uh, either on TV or even I hate to say it I'm almost ashamed to say it but you don't see it in real life the amount of respect that that the, the um, that the police gave uh, um, Kingo Go uh, Gondo's character uh, you know, they they said that we have to do this for him. I mean, he sacrificed everything for this boy, and we have to go out of our way to 
to you know make sure that he gets his money back or you know help him in any way that we possibly can and i think that the way that the movie was uh, was being told also showed you know a, a great respect for the cops also yeah and i think both of what you bring up i think is endemic to the japanese uh, culture and again I, right. I know i say that knowing nothing about <laughs> japanese culture but it my my perception of it is that is it it, it is one built upon respect and a right. great deal of respect mm -hmm. for one another and for the society as a whole. The yes. whole is more yes. important than the individual. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's right, but that's what I kind of think. Okay. Um, and I almost thought it was kind of also indicative of Gondo's position within that society that the cops would be so driven mm -hmm. to recover the money and to find out who did this, not because it's their job, not mm -hmm. because it's the right thing to do, but it's commented on repeatedly that they need to do this for Gondo. Right, like exactly. He yeah. is a person worthy of our attention, which mm -hmm. then prompts the question in some viewers' minds, like, well, would they do this if, the, if, if something similar happened to one of those people living in the shantytown? in the valley beneath Gondo's home. And I think that's what Kurosawa was trying to get at mm -hmm. is this, maybe this perception that, you know, the, the, the system works better for more people for, for certain people over others. And obviously that's a conversation going on in our country right now. Yeah. We, we've been saying that for years when we were watching these, uh, on TV trials, you know, I mean, money buys you the best lawyers, money buys you the, uh, uh the votes and all that stuff. So I, I, I guess, I guess it's exactly. uh, kind of true, you know. Yeah, and and I think it asks. I think the movie asks a lot of questions beyond it being a pure procedural. The movie asks a ton of questions about how how a how institutions serve their constituents. Right. And there's a whole ton of people down in that shanty town that the cops interact with in a certain way. And then they have a great deal of respect for Mr. Gondo. And their drive to do this, again, like I said, is not because, hey, we're cops. This is our job. We should do our best, which I hope was the attitude I tried to have for 20 years. Yeah. I mean, I didn't always, but, you know, you try to bring everything you can to whatever, whatever job you do. It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. But I was blown away by this continued commenting on that this man deserves it. This man, who is a great executive in post-war Japan, um, a country that was trying to recover its honor after you know World War II, and I, I, the whole throughout the movie, I thought that that constant bringing up of that uh, social observation was was fascinating. You know, there was something else uh, that comes up a lot in the movie. Mm -hmm. The cops talk a lot. And this is a thing, cops do this a lot in my experience too, about how even if they capture the guy who did this, he's not going to get much time. Right, 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 right. And on IMDb, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, mm -hmm. there's, a, uh, there's a, a comment in here that kidnappings were on the rise in Japan mm -hmm. at this time. And Kurosawa himself had received threats um, that his daughter was going to be kidnapped. And his daughter, Kazuko Kurosawa, quoted her father as once saying that with high and low, I wanted to inspire tougher sentences on kidnappers. Instead, I was criticized for the subsequent increase in kidnappings after the movie came out. And, and you and know I, what? I can totally see that. 
because it was a genius. It, 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 I hate to say it, but you know, it was kind of a, a of a genius idea. You know, and 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 they said it. They said, you know, uh, I mean, uh, my God, he's so smart. He, uh, one of them said he's the best villain I've ever seen. Pick a child off the street and then pick any millionaire, and he'll have to pay you. Yeah. Yeah, and and I guess this is the the nature. I don't know how accurate it was with regards to the nature of the Japanese uh, criminal system at that time. But yeah, it definitely seems as though we are led to believe that this guy would not have done time for this. And Go yeah, they, Gordo they said fifteen uh, years was the most he was going to have. Yeah, for uh, for kidnapping a kid, which yeah. seems pretty terrible. Yeah, um, I agree. As to the movie itself, though, mm-hmm. when I saw this, and and I didn't. I didn't really see this, but this this movie almost seems like three separate films to me. Oh yeah, absolutely. We we, we talked about the first part is almost like a chamber play. Mm-hmm. You're you're in that one home when after the kid is kidnapped. The second part it becomes a one of the most hardcore procedurals. It's literally every detective saying, "I spoke to this guy. This is what he told me." Right. And the ability to build tension while being that attentive to minute details mm-hmm. shows you how good a director Kurosawa is. But then the movie kind of segues into almost like a zombie horror movie in a way. And maybe I'm overselling it, but... <laughs> no, you're not overselling it. I wasn't thinking about it that way. It almost like it, it was almost like they used stock footage <laughs> a little bit in, in the scene that huh. I guess we're talking about when, when... I guess we're in the shanty towns. I guess we're in an area where there are... Um, American uh, military personnel in the area yes. because there's a lot of English uh, English writing on the on the um, on the walls, on signs, on the neon, the stores. So English music, American music. Yeah, American music, and what I guess you would only call American dancing. Um, you know that 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 kind of threw me a little bit um, because I couldn't really tell what they were. <laughs> What they were getting with this whole point until there was an exchange done, and then I realized, and and then my God, I, uh, I guess what they would used to call opium dens, but man, they I would never want to. Or a 1963 version of a crack house is is horrifying to me in this yeah, movie because what they're they're following the guy who does this, who's a medical intern. Again, we don't need to announce spoilers. If you're if you're listening to this podcast, we're going to spoil the movie. So we're definitely, we're definitely spoil yeah. the movie for you. <laughs> so the cops are trying to hunt this guy down and kind of catch him in the act because it's the only way they can you know get him dirty enough in order to put him away. Right. And it, it it becomes these cops kind of chasing this guy, not chasing but surveilling him mm-hmm. as he meanders through these opium dens. And I think there might be a comment there. I don't know what Curacao was intending, but I find it interesting that where the Americans are, mm-hmm. the drugs are. Yes, and yes. where the Americans are, society is kind of fraying at the edges. Mm-hmm. And you have these women that are that are high as a kite that are looking to sell themselves, and you've got people just sort of lying there in a in a heroin induced stupor. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 there's got to be a comment there on what post-war Japan was like, which I don't know. I'm not familiar enough with to say whether or not this was how it was, but mm-hmm. I'm guessing Kurosawa knew. <laughs> and it, it, it's almost disturbing in how disconnected some of these people are as the cops are trying to, to make their way through from bar to bar and chase this guy down. And... It, it took on the movie took on a very ominous tone at that point 
And I thought for in two hours and 23 minutes to effectively pull off three different types of movies and to have each of them be that compelling, I thought was amazing, which is why I gave you the movie. Yeah, no, I, it definitely worked for me. I definitely sensed the shift in tone from that second act to the uh, final act. I, I was thinking that there was going to be a lot more... Um, uh, bad things happening. I'm not sure if you know, looking for death and destruction, but I definitely thought there was going to be something going on in that uh, in that uh, opium den, if uh, for lack of a better way of putting it. Uh, I love the fact that this medical intern. I mean, love. I mean, it was very interesting to me that he was basically testing out his. Uh, his wares of heroin on uh, on people to see how pure it was so he could uh, kill more people with it or you know his his uh, his accomplices that, that that's basically what he was using it for and i couldn't tell uh, it, it was does that mean he was a doctor or is he just an assistant i couldn't tell he's, what a medical intern meant he's credited i think he's he's effectively someone tra- studying to become a doctor uh, so I think student. that's my impression. He's not. Okay. He's not like. I think it's like. Uh, he's not a resident yet. I don't know the hierarchy mm-hmm. within the medical community, but I think he's. He's not yet a full doctor. Right. Okay. But uh, yeah, I. And again, there's a final scene when uh, Gondo confronts uh, his the, the kidnapper in right. prison, and that kind of gives you that exchange. Kind of gives you the entire thesis of the movie. Right. Where, you know, the the kidnapper effectively says, I, I looked at you all the time up there mm-hmm. and I realized I was down here and, and I hated you for it. And that's uh, re- kind of the whole movie. Yeah, really kind of out of left field. It was sort of it, 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 it wasn't anybody he knew. It wasn't anybody he ever interacted with. If he passed him on the street, he would never know who he was. If he passed him on the street again, he would he wouldn't have remembered that he did it once before. It was it was just that it was that of left field for me that uh, this person would come up with this idea, and 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 it's because he had no idea who this person was. He had no interaction with him that it actually worked so well. Um, you know, it was only through the uh, uh, the hard work of the cops that that this guy was caught. Uh, I will say what I really did uh, I, th- I felt was really amazing in the black and white movie that this is. They were able to sneak in a little bit of color, and I was wondering, Jason, do you know anything about the pink smoke that we saw, which was actually a big clue in this film? Was that part of the original film, or is that something that was added on years later? I like, have no idea. Would, I caught that too, right. but I did not do like any research into it. Right. But it is very odd of that one thing. Did you get any? Did you do any digging into like what that's supposed to signify? No, no, I, no, no, I didn't. I, but what's funny to me is that clearly we did have color film at the time, and this movie was made in black and white for whatever reason. And I'm sure they had color films back in uh, in, uh, in, uh, in 1963 Japan. But they chose to do it in black and white. But the one part where there is smoke coming out of a smokestack, it turns out to be pink. And you actually see the pink color in in the film. Now, I guess you needed a way to um, differentiate the smoke color from regular smoke. However, I've never seen a film where they did that. On the screen, I've seen it later in l- later many years later, where maybe you know the company has gone back and they've uh, digitally edited it in. So I'm wondering if this is that was original or it was edited in afterwards. 
No, it's apparently according to I'm reading something on the Criterion channel uh, right now, and apparently it was original and it was deliberate and it doesn't explain. Um, oh, well, the theory. OK, here, this is, again, not my thinking. This is on Criterion channel. This was written by Jeffrey O'Brien in 2008, that the belief is, is that that is the moment in which the movie descends from heaven into hell. And the idea being is that heaven is Gondo's home and hell is the shanty town. I mean, I would not have thought of it like that. But, I mean, we realize, I mean, I mean, the reason why there's pink smoke is because they put those uh, little, you know, tablets in it. And it said that if the rob- if the uh, kidnapper was to throw away this in uh, this satchel in the water, it would give off a foul odor and maybe we'd be able to you know follow it or if he burns it it will create pink smoke and that's what he did he burned it and it went up the chimney and it turned pink and that's where they were able to see it when the little boy comes in he goes you know mom mom come look at the pretty pink uh, smoke right and that's when they kind of know uh it's that general area that the, the it's been burned but yeah I, I, I'm sure like within this, it means one thing within the story and then thematically and symbolically it means something else. And uh, again, the, the, the take from Jeffrey O'Brien on the CriterionChannel.com is that that's the moment when the people living up on high finally notice those down below. Hmm. Okay. And yeah. I, get, I guess from Kurosawa, it's just a, an authorial flourish, kind of the way like Quentin Tarantino spells in Glorious Bastards, or, you know, it's just a choice by a director. And, <laughs> and when you're Kurosawa, you're able to do that. I guess, well, you know what? There is nothing in this movie that did not work for me. I thoroughly enjoyed it, especially on a snowy blizzard outside. I wasn't going anywhere, so I might as well sit down and watch two hours and 25 minutes of black and white Japanese movie. Yeah, you know, for one time, I think we we watched a movie roughly the same length. And mm-hmm. I'm curious mm-hmm. yes. if the Russo brothers have earned the same rights, authorial rights to sort of have throw their flourishes into the movies they direct, because you gave me uh, this past week, Avengers Infinity War. Yes, yes. We are getting towards uh, the end of our MCU trip with Jason here, folks. And uh, this is now, this was the fourth MCU film that, uh, that I was on my list to give you. There's only one left. And it's arguably the biggest one that you've seen i in fact i know it is there's no argument here it's the biggest one in every single aspect scope of it uh story act uh, you know uh, characters what did you think first off all right before i answer that this is actually the fifth mcu movie you've fifth. given me I, okay i'm sorry I, I apologize. i've watched since this podcast began i've watched i've been challenged with the avengers right Winter Soldier, mm-hmm. Age of Ultron, Civil War, okay, and this go. was Infinity War. I, I, I forgot Age of Ultron. I try to forget the bad ones that you didn't like. I, sorry. I would like to forget Age of yeah, Ultron, I'm too. Sorry. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. All right. So, Avengers Infinity War. And again, before I get into this, mm-hmm. the preface has been that I've mostly enjoyed these movies, right. much more than I thought I would. Okay. So much so that I went out unchallenged and saw No Way Home yes. uh, with my wife. Yes. Unprompted. And and once again, again, we, we have to say that you go into this film without the two or three um, films that you would need for a little bit of backstory to really understand. But you're a smart person. 
whatever. I'm sure you're able to put it together to, for the most part, unless, uh, you know, and that's what I'm here for. So go ahead. Yeah, and this is going to be me asking you a lot of questions because uh, I don't I don't research a lot of the stuff that's after fine. the fact. That's fine. I I try to have like a I try to come into these movies with a clean slate, yeah, and fine. for the most part, they've done a good job. Yeah. And, and again, I'm sure I'm sure the people that make millions of dollars writing and producing <laughs> these movies are grateful that some schmuck in New England thinks they're doing a good job. But for the most part, all the other movies have me grounded right away. This okay. is my first note to myself. Okay. 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 Who is Thanos killing? Mm-hmm. Wait, is that Thor? Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> the, right off the bat, and, and bring me up to speed. You know, and and this is just so you, just so the people know that me and Jason text each other, you know, a few times a day, and I said that you are definitely going to need to probably see the ending of Thor three, Thor Ragnarok, and he steadfast refused, even though it would only have been five minutes of a, of a, a, of a post-credit scene, uh, really in the five minutes, of the last five minutes of the movie and five minutes of the post-credit scene, he refused. He says, no, it's up to the Russo brothers and Marvel to make me understand this film. And as we know, it's a little bit difficult to do that when you have so much going into so many other films going into these last two so those are the asgardians and okay the, the asgardians at, at the end of thor 3 basically their world their home asgard exploded and that's basically all that's left and, and that and that was in ragnarok yes exactly so so uh, which yeah, go ahead which everything i've seen about ragnarok is that it's it's a really good movie oh great and great movie great movie you'd love it yeah. So okay, I would have I would have welcomed it as a challenge, but mm-hmm. the the nature of this movie, mm-hmm. the nature of this podcast mm-hmm. is that we challenge each other with these individual films, and even though MCU is clearly part of a universe and everything ties into one another, I'm still coming at it from the point of view where like, okay, I should see some of these movies and right. whether or not I connect to them. Yes. So all right, it took me a minute to realize because Thor, Thor had a, a weird eye patch on, and Hemsworth had the short hair, right, and. I knew because I just exist on our planet right. you can't avoid it. Right. That he changes someone in Ragnarok and I yes. think there's Fat Thor for a while too. Um maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, then maybe maybe I'm like I, I or maybe Hulk is in glasses. You, you've heard you've point. heard of Fat Thor, yes, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah. So and again, I have vague awareness oh, of what's okay. going on. Mm-hmm. So all, most of my notes concern the outset of the movie where mm-hmm. I was completely lost. Okay. And that's the first time in any of these movies where I could not sit down and pick up kind of where we were or at least figure it out pretty quickly. And right. it took me like 15 minutes to, right. to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this... I kind of have come to a, a broad theory regarding these movies. Okay. Okay, the best ones, my favorites, mm-hmm. which were... Uh, Winter Soldier, Civil War, right. and I don't know. Can you include No Way Home? It's not really like tied that directly into. I guess it is because Doctor Strange and everything. Yeah, and they talk about okay. Iron Man and and the Avengers in there. Okay, so the in the best movies, I'm on board for the entire ride, whatever it is, two hours and thirty minutes usually, give or take. Right. And what I've come to notice with some of these movies is. I str- my mind tends to stray at about the hour and 50 minute mark with some of them. And that was with Ultron mm-hmm. and that was somewhat with the Avengers, not as much. And it was definitely with this one. And I don't want to sound 
like a cranky old man. I'm 45 years old, and no, believe me, no one, whoever is listening to this is our age, right? There's no, there's no 24 year olds out there going, yo, you got to listen to Movie Challenge Accepted. Yeah, yeah I mean, pretty much. I, I pretty get much. That. <laughs> it's just us. It's a bunch of old geeks who used to be young geeks. Mm-hmm. And I almost felt like Infinity War was too much of everything. Oh, see, well, have you saying that is uh, you're in for it with Endgame, um, you know, and, and you know, you know what, maybe I could have challenged you with Thor. I, I just didn't, you know, like I said, since the beginning, I didn't want it to be an MCU um, focused uh, a challenge every week or every other week. I, I definitely thought that the ones that I gave you would be more than enough for you to come up with. And if you did have a problem, it, it definitely would have been the first 15 minutes of Infinity War. That being said, afterwards, when things basically start, you know, on Earth, how is it then for you where it's more grounded? And basically what you were telling me by liking the films that you liked, you you liked the movies that were more grounded in quote-unquote reality and um, whatever's going on on Earth rather than out there in, in space. Yeah, I think what I've learned is that I'm, I respond the most to when these characters are have their masks off and their helmets off right. and they're mostly shooting the shit with each other and obviously you know Downey does a great job with Stark and Evans is better a better Captain America than I ever thought mm-hmm. he he would be right. and I even like uh, Cumberbatch's uh, Stephen Strange I think mm-hmm. he's I, I, is this the first time he shows up in the in the Marvel Universe no he's already had his own okay. film at this point and shows up oh, in wait a minute, Thor Ragnarok okay so alright so he's yeah but I realized that, and again, this is just what I'm interested in. It doesn't mean it's better or worse. It's just this is what I respond to, is I get into these movies the most when they are all sitting around either showing some kind of emotion or breaking each other's stones or just mm-hmm. kind of dissecting what's going on. Okay. And I get the formula. Like, mm-hmm. it's you see it now what it is. It's like action set piece, uh, quiet moment set up the plot big action set piece bigger action set piece and then huge action set piece right and in the best movies in the avengers and in civil war they pull that off pretty well and i think my issue with infinity war is just that there's so much going on that no one gets a chance to really be the focus of the movie the focus of the movie is essentially thanos right yes definitely 100 percent thanos in this film and he's also arguably the most interesting character. To and, me. And yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And when your villain is the most interesting character, and that's not uncommon, right? Kaiser Soze, Hannibal Lecter, um, uh, Hans Gruber. Like, villains tend to be interesting because they represent a part of us that we either push down or we uh, we don't allow the world to see or, or we know that that shouldn't be allowed in, in civilized society. So seeing a good villain kind of brings something out in us where we're like, oh, this, this is, okay, yeah, I get, I, this is something that exists that is kind of uh, risque. Right. And obviously, <laughs> obviously the idea of killing half of the civilization, half of the, half of the universe half in the order universe. to give the other half a better life. Yeah. Is is probably wrong, although obviously the ha- the hashtag Thanos was right was out uh, yeah. there in the world. Uh, yeah. Um, 
so you bring that up though, Jason, about about uh, him being, you know, you you almost went, you almost set, finished it by saying that maybe there's a problem if the villain is the most interesting character. Is that where you're going with that? Because it almost it almost sounded like that's what you were saying. Yeah, but now that now you're making me think like was was Ultron the most interesting character in Age of Ultron? Well, maybe. I, well, or, or let me just perf- let me just say this. I I think that. This specifically in this film, the the focus was to be on Thanos because not only was he the biggest person in the film, you know, just in in his just the way that he walked and talked in his grandiose appearance, but he was also um, what he was doing was such a huge incomprehensible endeavor that he needed to be this larger than life in every way and larger than every character uh, on the film. Um, That's why he was interesting to everybody. Plus, we've already seen the characters, not you as much, but we've already seen every single one of these characters. We know what they're about. There is not much that's going to be surprising to us. So Thanos, who had been built up since 2014 and now has his very first appearance on screen where he's doing something needs to be there needs to be a big payoff and this was it okay that makes a lot of sense to me when you when you frame it like that i get it and 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 i get that and i also in the course of my writing i've kind of become friends or friendly with a bunch of published uh not a bunch but a number of published writers Mm -hmm. and they all kind of say the same thing to me about plot versus character where you think when you're a young writer that you come up with a an incredible plot idea which like uh gone girl right that right amy dunn fakes her own death and frames her husband for it and then she's going to kill herself Mm -hmm. um and that's the plot but really these writers tell me what what readers really respond to is character and i think the reason why I didn't get to respond to Infinity War as much is because those characters who I, yeah, I have come to to really enjoy being around, I'm not allowed to be around him. And instead, I'm given this new guy who, and, and Brolin's really cool in this, and mm-hmm. I love Brolin. Mm-hmm. And I, even though I kept seeing, uh, I kept seeing <laughs> Llewellyn Moss from uh, No Country for Old Men every time he stepped on the screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wish I had more time. I would. I, I would have taken more uh, Batista as uh, shoot. What's his character's name? Drax. Thank you. Uh-huh. I would have taken more. Uh, like the the Guardians. I don't. I don't like. It's kind of weird. I was never interested in the Guardians, mm-hmm. and and I think the Peter Quill character. He's just a human. Like I yeah. don't get why he's here. Well, he's not well, just half a human. human. Half human. He's half, know, human, half human. Half celestial. It, you get to a point, and they were smart to leave Hawkeye out entirely. Because I'm sorry, when you're fighting a, a literal god or a godlike <laughs> creature, put 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 oh your boy. fucking bow and arrow. Oh you, there's boy. no reason why you oh need to be boy. here. You're you're in for it on Endgame, man. You really are. <laughs> yeah, I, I worry. Also, I'm always shocked that Bradley Cooper is the voice of Rocket Raccoon, and and he's great at it. <laughs> okay, yeah, I mean, he's like, fantastic. Because that's the thing, right? Is everyone's good in this. Everyone, like even. You can't look at any of these performances and be like, oh, that's they, they suck. They're mailing it in. Because no one's mailing it in. No. Everyone seems to be enjoying themselves. Mm-hmm. But 
and again, I, I, I know that I caught up though. I, I think the problem here is that you're getting caught up on in this film. I'm going to call them ancillary characters. Uh, you know, Captain America, Iron Man. They really are not the focus of this particular film. It is Thanos, and I think what the Russos did and the screenwriters. I know you know their names better than I do. What it's again? It's the same ones. The that same did ones. The Captain America. Yeah, it's Marcus and yeah. McFeely. Yeah, right, right. So they. What what they did was basically said, you know everybody here. We're not giving you anybody new. The only person that you really need to worry about is Thanos. And by doing that, they create the sense of, quote unquote, dread that you need to have in this character or, or, or for this character because of what he is going about and doing. And he's mowing down everybody in his way. I mean, he is so steely in his will and concentration to get this done and that really nobody stands in his way which means that people that we do care about are going to fall and in the end and what i wanted you to get out of this film is some kind of feeling in the third act for what happened and did that happen yes so you just listening to you now made me question the way I'm approaching these movies, right? Because my beef with you has always been, oh, they're a formula. It's the same thing over and over again. They, they hit the same story beats and it's essentially the same thing over right. and over again. And yet... Which it is. Which it is. Uh, I, will never, I will never say no to what you say uh, to that. And nobody can ever, say, can ever doubt that. It's definitely a formula. But... Now, the way you brought this up, it, it, it's revealing about me because here I'm complaining that these are the same things, the same stories over and over again. And yet when they give me a story focusing on someone else, I'm complaining, why aren't you giving me, why, why <laughs> can't I see Man. Cap and, yeah, exactly. yeah, give me more Iron Man, yeah. give me more, give me more Spidey. Right. And now, like you've just shaken my entire world in terms of watching <laughs> these movies and thinking oh like how I approach them. Because... <laughs> Because you really, if you think about it, I'm I'm sitting here and I'm complaining about something, and then when they give me something else, I'm complaining about the something else. Yeah, and and I think, and it's really not fair I, I, that, that you complain like that, but I understand why you are. Um, I, I think that they realized uh, Kevin Feige. Let, let's go back. Let's go back to the phase one. When when phase one was coming about, when they were putting out these films, Iron Man, Iron Man 2, Thor, they had no idea at, at what was going to happen past Avengers. And you saw that in the very first batch of the phase two films, which were very loosely done and kind of had no connection to anything. It wasn't until... 2014 that you realized that they were coming up with this infinity gauntlet storyline that they were adapting from the comics so they put everything together little bits and pieces and and the, the films you don't really have to watch one film to understand another until you get to this point and and like i said the only one that you're really missing would probably have been thor 3 and and to really just segue you into what was happening however like I mentioned, up until this point, it's a, it, they built the world that you and I have seen in these movies. They built the characters. You're not going to get anything different. The only, only thing that comes about in this film that is different for you is the Guardians of the Galaxy, who have already shown up twice 
prior in their own films. You weren't going to see those. If you'd like to see those now, you can get a little bit of backstory on them. You could see why Peter Quill, um, you know, uh, Chris Chris Platt's uh, character loves Gamora. You could you could you could you could see why Drax is the way he is, and you can see why people thought that Vin Diesel should get the Oscar nomination for voicing Groot. <laughs> I, I don't know what people those are. <laughs> yeah, Do you so. know, I I saw, I, I, I didn't realize this when we first started this podcast, but right. I watched Guardians of the Galaxy one oh, day okay. a long time ago. Okay. And I liked it. I, I, I didn't realize I'd seen it before when it was called Star Wars oh, because God. that's what it is. <laughs> it's not Star but Wars. It's it really, very, it really Peter has nothing Quill, <laughs> Peter Quill has echoes of Han Solo like you wouldn't. That's how I read him. But, you know, I'm looking at the, at the movies uh, coming out now, like you were, the way they were coming out, right. as you were saying, what I would need to have seen in order to grasp Infinity War fully. Right. And it's, it's clear because I saw Civil War. Right. And then it was Doctor Strange, mm -hmm. Guardians 2, mm -hmm. uh, Spider-Man Spider Homecoming, right. Ragnarok, and then Black Panther, which preceded Infinity War. Okay. And I, my favorite part of this movie, mm -hmm. oddly enough, because I don't go for the big battle scenes for the most part, right. I thought the battle at Wakanda mm -hmm. was the most well-done and most meaningful and intentional part of the movie. It reminded me... It reminded me very much of the Battle of Helm's Deep in the Lord of the Ring, the Two Towers. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was that scene. And maybe, and again, not to say, I, I guess I am getting old. So much of the movie takes place in space. And I saw, I watched this on my TV at home at like noon. Mm -hmm. And we have one window that we don't have uh, blinds over. And I swear <laughs> to God, in the space scenes, I had no fucking clue what was going oh, on. Man. There were times I was just listening and I'm like, I think that's Thanos. Yeah, and then yeah. I said, I texted you as I was watching this. Mm -hmm. And I said, is that Dinklage? Yeah. yeah no. Who, by because the way, we... was a terrible character. He played that so badly with that accent. Oh, it was terrible. I also wonder if there was something like does that character exist in the Marvel universe? Etri, yes, he does. Okay, yes. and and he is a a massive. Uh, he's because I I was no, thinking he's not it, he's not in the and that's another thing that I don't I won't understand. I don't care who explains it to me as a fan. Etri is a dwarf. He is a dwarf. That means he's small, and I don't understand really? why he's. 25 feet tall in, in the freaking movie. I, I, I don't Be, get it. I don't get it. Because my note, when, when Dinklage shows up, my, my note to myself is Dinklage is doing Hagrid yeah. from Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Because that was the vibe I got. Oh, I, so I have, I have a few questions, right, go okay? Ahead. Go ahead. All right, so I always ask you these things. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know where nowhere was. I didn't know the, the meaning of nowhere. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. So nowhere is nowhere. It, you saw that in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, is basically a shantytown trader outpost. Outpost that is, um, it, it is within the severed head of a long dead celestial. So it's pretty big. Not it's not planet size, but it's you know it's about the size of a big New York City floating in space kind of thing. Is a Celestial one of the Eternals? A Celestial is, in the comics and in the movies, one of the oldest beings in in the, in all of the Marvel Universe. Uh, in the movies, we saw them really for the first time um, with any 
real kind of backstory in the Eternals that just came out. And they were the ones basically that created the cosmos. They created the stars, the planets. Um, and through the Eternals movie, a little bit of, I don't even know if I should say this, but a little bit of what you watched and what you were going to end up watching and was kind of retconned already. And I'm not happy about it. Really? Really, we won't we won't get into it until after. Okay, yeah, done. don't tell me, yeah, don't we, don't we spoil it for no, me. Yeah, no, because I'm the only I'm the only one listening to this podcast who has who doesn't know what you're talking about right exactly. now. Exactly. Well, I mean, a lot of other people may not see it that way, but I, I had to explain it to a few people how you know the, what what the Eternals did, and you know you, you kind of retconned the movie that was only two years old. So what huh. the hell are you doing? Okay, um, moving on. Let me see. Nowhere. Oh wait, so is Galactus a celestial? Uh, Galactus is his own. Uh, Galactus is a force of nature. Galactus in the comics is the last surviving member of the universe that existed before ours, before the Big Bang. So when Entropy took the universe, like what will happen to ours, uh, Entropy will take the universe and there will be another Big Bang. He actually survived it and became Galactus. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I'm looking up the rest of my questions. Uh, who was Thanos? Okay. So obviously mm -hmm. Thanos gets the reality stone. And when the Guardians arrive at nowhere, mm -hmm. Gamora thinks that she's able to kill him. Actually, mm -hmm. that relationship, Zoe Saldana is very good yes, as Gamora, good. by the way. Mm -hmm. Like everyone's real good, but like certain people in this movie stood out. Mm -hmm. uh, Sol Zoe Saldana stood out. Brolin, I don't know how they. I'm guessing it's all. I'm guessing it's Brolin wearing a bodysuit and a bunch of ping pong balls on uh, his face, so yes, they can do the CGI exactly. capture. Yeah, but but you know, um, CGI works. I you can't. I mean, you can't tell me that he, that it looks bad. No, no, not at all. And yeah. and, and Brolin's awesome. So who was the guy Brolin was? Does it even matter that Brolin Did, was torturing someone, or is yeah, that character meaningless? That was Benicio del Toro. <laughs> so okay, all right, all right. So thank. I remember in Guardians, Benicio shows up as yes. like the collector. The Am collector, I right? Yes, collector is in the comics. Uh, they're not. He's, they're not called this in the in the movies just yet. But in the comics, they are called the Elders of the Universe. And he, along with the Grandmaster, who you have not seen, but is played by Jeff Goldblum in Thor three. Amazing. Wait, by Jeff the way. Goldblum is in the Marvel oh, Universe? Oh, he's amazing. And he's amazing, too. It was really probably the best part of Thor 3. And that's saying a lot because Thor 3 was amazing. But they're called the Elders of the Universe. And they are in, in the in the uh, in the comics. The geek that I am would know this. They are the last living beings of their races that are so um into one thing they're, they're they're so concentrated in doing one particular thing that they outlive everybody else and gain these supernatural cosmic powers that, oh so they're podcasters yeah pretty much <laughs> pretty much yes absolutely. they're just really into yeah. talking about shit and they're gonna live forever in, in 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 the comics the collector collects everything including people species whatever um and it, it, he in the comics he also had the reality stone uh, but could never really figure out how to use it. And in in uh, the second Thor movie, uh, the Aether, which is the reality stone, was given to him by the Asgardians, saying, and that's when we first heard the term Infinity Stones, when they said that um, the Mind Stone is already, uh, the Space Stone is already on um, 
on Asgard, it's not wise to keep two Infinity Stones uh, so close to each other. So, okay, mm-hmm. it, it is like, hey, I I respect the world building, but again, the world building was mostly done, you know, thirty years ago by the writers at Marvel. So, right. but I still respect like mm-hmm. the 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 ability to bring to have the vision to make this real and to put it on a screen in the way you and I and would make have it loved work when yes. we were yeah. right. Yeah. Like I totally respect that. Matter yeah. of fact, the character that I knew nothing about because I was yeah. never a Doctor Strange fan. The inventiveness that they stage those battles with, as opposed to just having people punch each other, like uh, Hulk in the Hulk suit, the 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 Iron is I don't know if there's a name for that Iron Man suit that he's in for most of this movie. Hulkbuster. Okay, so he's in the Hulkbuster armor, Mm -hmm. and he's essentially just fist fighting Thanos. Like that's completely uninteresting to me. But what they do with Strange and Thanos's Mm -hmm. magician slash sidekick character, whose name I don't didn't catch. Um, uh, Wong. Those. Okay. No. 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 Not. Not Doctor Strange's. It, oh. Are you uh, talking about? Oh, Thanos's. Okay. So that Thanos. would be. Yeah, um, yeah. That would be. Uh, uh, the thin guy is Ebony Maw. Uh, the okay. big guy that doesn't speak is Cull Obsidian. I was. I was thinking of the thin guy that who who essentially appears to be some sort of magician or has yeah, some okay. sort of yeah, power. A, Ebony Maw. Okay. Yeah. Like those. That battle scene in new york city i thought was great because it was inventive Mm -hmm. and it was very much out of the ordinary and i also loved in in no way home i loved the the scenes when they're in the mirror universe right when Mm -hmm. spidey and and stranger are in the mirror like that stuff is amazing to have the vision and the the imagination to to figure out how to depict that on screen and make is it work wild, yeah. is wildly impressive. Yeah, absolutely. You would love Doctor um, Strange then, if if for nothing else, then just those effects because they're all over that movie. I mean, it's a trip. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of looks like it's very it's Inception turned up to you know yes. turned all the way up to eleven. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Very. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that you said, like like you wanted me to react, you wanted to see what my reaction would be right at the end. And the mm-hmm. snap sequence. And I, yeah. my note here, my last note to myself in the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, I have two notes. One more question. Why didn't the Hulk come out? Did, was so that explained? In, Did I miss it? Yeah. Uh, he was in uh, Thor 3. So that was a big Hulk movie also. And uh, so Hulk and Thor are, are on, a, on a world together that is run by the Grandmaster. And when he said that we're kind of having a thing, he was Mark Ruffalo's character of uh, Bruce Banner and the Hulk are basically acting like two separate people in one body. And he doesn't want to come out any longer. He in the past, you're able to he was able to bring him out at will because he had, uh, you know, gotten to the point that now he could just, you know, bring him out. And now he got such a beating from Thanos at the beginning of that movie as well as what had been happening on Thor 3 that he's kind of basically gone into his own shell. And uh, Ruffalo at the end says, Hulk, we got to figure this out. It's basically an existential crisis for the Hulk. Okay. All right. That makes sense because I wasn't quite clear on why uh, Banner was having such a hard time because he's always referred to him as the other guy and the other guy is not coming out and Mm -hmm. he's trying to get him to come out and and it it doesn't work. Jekyll and Hyde allegory for for the times. (laughs) I also thought that Ruffalo was doing his Mike Resendez character from Spotlight. If you ever saw that, um, never saw that. Never saw that. I might. Uh, okay, that's good to know. That's never a potential that. future challenge. I know but it, but I never saw it. They knew. 
and they let it happen. Yes, he's doing that uh, <laughs> that wild over. He's kind of doing the same character a little bit. I don't, I don't know. I just got a kick out of it. Um, and then my last note on this was the snap sequence. Right, okay. right. The music drops out, mm-hmm. and I thought this, that by far the best, most emotional and effective sequence of the entire movie mm-hmm. yep. by far i agree i thought they handled that incredibly well and obviously we know or at least i know mm-hmm. you know i have another movie to get to get through at some point with you and mm-hmm. i do know that these characters i well i shouldn't say i don't know what happens to the tony starks and the mm-hmm. uh the, the caps i i assume I, I know they're i know those actors are no longer playing those roles so mm-hmm. i don't know how it's explained but the the way half of humanity blinks out of existence i thought that whole scene was incredibly compelling yeah half half the universe and basically there we were told that half of all living organisms were were blinked out so imagine that you know you can't you really can't wrap your head around it even on a earthly scale let alone a universal one so um you'll you'll see some of the um uh, fallout from that in endgame and when you say that it was the most effective scene, well, that's what you really needed to get to. And that's what it was building up to. There was tension in this film. There was drama. You, you, they were trying to stop this from happening. They didn't know that this was going to happen. They just knew that whatever he was going to do, whatever he wanted to do with these things, they could not let it happen. And in the end, they still let it happen. This is, they, they were still defeated. It brings back one of my all-time favorite movies and the greatest Star Wars film of all time, which is Empire Strikes Back, where... Empire. What happens at the end of Empire? You know, basically, they lose. You know, there goes there goes Han, frozen in carbonite, going to Jabba's palace. You know, they, they need to regroup. And that's what happens in this film. And they lost big... And you're going to see the ramifications of that at the very beginning of Endgame, you're, you know, and throughout all of Endgame. And say what you want about Jeremy Renner and Hawkeye and his bow and arrow. <laughs> but, I, no, no, but I love Jeremy more, Renner. I, he, I'm not crazy about Hawkeye. No, I got it. I got it. Listen, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, one of the best lines in Ultron was, you know, and, and, you know, we're, we're we're fighting robots, and I have a bow and arrow. None of none of this makes sense, you know. Yes, and, and he's because right. he's self, you know. And that's that Joss Whedon sense of self awareness. Yes, exactly. Is, exactly. It, it becomes a little meta, and and when you're commenting on how ridiculous your position is, exactly, it's, it's cool. So, um, so one last thing though, uh, seeing as how you're a big fan of Tom Holland as Spider Man, in that scene where he gets turns to dust, I mean, did you not feel anything? Because that scene was totally unscripted, and he how, he did that himself. When how could that not be scripted? That was all just ad libbed by Holland. Holland ad libbed the part where he goes, "I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Please don't let me go. I don't want to go." And and uh, they kept it in there because it worked so well. I mean, that emotion was real. And I don't know if you caught it, but at the end he says, I'm sorry to Tony yes. Stark because that was his you know, last he failed words. him. You know, his his mentor, his father figure, the one thing he doesn't have that we've seen in the other films now, he he he, he felt like he failed him. And imagine how Tony feels. And yeah, you're, you're, I mean, you're news, going to. Yeah. Newsflash is Tom Holland's a great Peter Parker. He's a great Spider-Man. Absolutely. Like, I, 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 you can see there... 
in a movie filled with movie stars, and there's a difference between actors and movie stars, right? You can be a great actor, but you're not necessarily a movie star and vice versa. But in a movie filled with movie stars, like there are certain people that just rise to the top that just have a presence about them. And even though he's so young, Holland is one of them. Right. And obviously, you know, Downey is, and, and there's, you can go down the list, but there are certain... There's certain people in in these movies that just rise to the top, and, and, and yeah, I'm he, he was I'm up there with everybody else. Yeah. I'm fully on board with Good. Holland. Good. So Tom, okay. Tom Holland, if you're listening and you're not, you're a great Spider-Man, <laughs> and you now go. you can now you can go to sleep tonight saying again, <laughs> thank you. I'm glad. But yeah, man, the snap the snap sequence was great. The great. the battle of Wakanda was mm-hmm. was awesome. Okay. Um, and but again, I thought. My mind tends to wander mm-hmm. around an hour 45, an hour 50, okay. and I get they're trying to put so much in. I almost think that's why I respond to the movies that are almost less is more. Okay. Oh, I have another question. Sure. That's another note that I have. Where, where is Nick Fury? I haven't seen him in uh, I don't know how long. Jason, did you not watch the ending of this film? Okay. Now, it's interesting that you bring that up. Because I finished the movie and I had a couple things I had to go shovel for the 98th time after I finished the movie. And then I realized, I watched this on uh, Disney Plus, uh-huh. and I realized there were nine minutes left on, on the screen. Yeah. And I, and I said, oh, I've got the post-credits sequence. I got to come back for that. And I didn't. Okay. So I did not watch the post-credits sequence. Well, you, you should. Can you can oh since since this is for the podcast okay. can you give it to me and I will respond in yes. real time. Okay, so um Nick Fury along with uh Agent Hill, which is played by Colby Smolders. Yes. are driving and all of a sudden the snap happens as it happens all over the world and you have um aircraft falling out of the sky. Cars crashing in front of them, people disappearing off the street. All of a sudden, uh, Agent Hill is uh, is snapped out of existence, and so uh, while he doesn't know what's going on, he knows that there's something big going on, and basically he knows that something cosmic is going on. So he goes into the duffel bag in the back of his car. He pulls out what looks like a retro beeper of something of sorts, and has he's about to go hit the button. He starts to get dusted and he, he goes with this tra- trademark you know what, what's the one word that samuel jackson says in every single movie he's about to say motherfucker and right before he finishes the word he gets dusted but his thumb is there at the last second and is able somehow to press the button the beeper falls on the floor and in it says you know waiting waiting and all of a sudden you get the logo on the screen of the beeper that looks like miss marvel's uniform and that was the end. And so this is how they bring uh, Carol uh, Captain Danvers, Marvel, Brie, Brie Larson's Miss Brie Larson. Marvel, into the Marvel universe. It happened uh, the following year. It was the movie that came out before uh, Endgame. Yeah, because then the I see there's Ant Man and the Wasp, and then Captain love, Marvel. Love and then Paul Endgame. Rudd. Love Paul Rudd. Yeah, <laughs> we are well aware of your love uh, for Paul love, Rudd. Love that guy. Uh, yes, we know. All, All right. right. Uh, yeah, again, you know, you can't fault these movies because they give you exactly what they want, yeah. what you want, and what you've come to, to want. But right. I, I don't know. This I, I loved the Russo Brothers' two previous efforts. Right. 
this one, I I would I almost felt overwhelmed, and I sound like an old, no, an, an old. It, it's fuck understandable. It's understandable because they, and, you know, it, I'm glad that Marvel took the chance and let them do it because they obviously can do it, but it was definitely a stretch that they were going to be able to do this well. Uh, in my opinion, and it, though you may feel a little overwhelmed, I think that if you had a little bit more of a backstory in those first 15, 20 minutes, maybe you wouldn't have felt like you were thinking so hard and maybe you would have reacted a little bit better to it. So, uh, you know, my fault, but uh, I, I think you, I was hoping that you would get something out of the end of this film. And I think you have because you have, you've seen these characters so much over the last two and a half months. Yeah, like I'm definitely they've they've roped me in. Right, I good. care about the story. I okay. care about what they're doing. Good. Well, then you're gonna yeah, you're so. gonna care what happens. I am, okay. and I do. Good. And uh, that's gonna that'll probably wrap this one up, okay. right? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think we've hit the points. Okay. Uh, do you know what you are giving me? <laughs> what you're challenging me with for next week? Well, you know, it's funny you say that, Jason. I should have. <laughs> I should have asked you this before we uh, got on to record. So if we have to edit this, this is going to be one of those times. But I have a bunch of films that I don't think you've seen. But I do want to give you one in particular. Did you ever see Mel Gibson's Payback? Have we spoken about that? We have not, and I have not. Ooh, okay. Well, 1997's Mel Gibson Payback. And you can uh, look it up real fast if you want to. Um, it it was uh, yeah, it came out in was it ninety seven or no, no? It came out in ninety nine. And uh, besides Mel Gibson being in this film, he had along with him. Let's see, uh, Greg Henry, Maria Bello. Um, more importantly, uh, where is he? Uh, there you go, James Coburn, Chris Christopherson, and a, and a few other people. And I loved Coburn in this film. This film is was was so out of left field. Uh, however, I will have to make sure that you watch the right uh, version of this film. There are two versions. One, literally two versions. <laughs> okay, so um, it was written and directed by uh, Brian Hel Helgeland. I'm not sure if you know him uh, from anything else. Uh, I do know that name, actually. Okay. I'm familiar uh, with yeah, that it, name. It was his uh, debut. He wrote the screenplays for the films L.A. Confidential and Mystic River. Yes. So I, so. I knew I knew that name. Uh, he also directed 42 uh, with uh, Jackie Robinson. So yeah, with, uh, Chadwick Chadwick Boseman, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I I think you're gonna like this film because it's a little bit offbeat, but it definitely hits all of the uh, noir buttons that uh, grimy noir buttons that you are fond of. I am shocked. Oh, he also did the remake of Taking of Pelham One Two Three. He oh, wrote did the screenplay okay, for that. He did that one, but there you go. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, you know, it, it this is the second kind of noir movie you've given me. You gave me confidence, right. and I'm shocked that you have this side of you that apparently you've kept hidden for years and years and years. <laughs> but okay, uh, okay, I'm, okay, so I'm payback. cool with that. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I will accept that challenge. Okay, uh, payback yeah, for me, yeah. thank you. Um, for you, I guess maybe uh, this came about because I was very into Cumberbatch's version of Stephen Strange, mm -hmm. and there's a movie right now on Netflix. Mm -hmm. Written and directed by Jane Campion, okay. uh, a filmmaker who's been around forever. Minor. She did, yep. You did probably the piano yep. way back when mm -hmm. with um, with Holly Hunter and Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
There's a movie on Netflix right now that my wife and I watched two days ago called The Power of the Dog. Oh, yes. I've, I've heard lots of things about it. All right. It, this movie mm-hmm. blew me away. Yeah. And Did you know he didn't is, shower through the whole thing? Hey, listen, you don't you don't fuck with Cumberbatch. I know. He's gonna make he's gonna make choices yep. and those choices are gonna be authentic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh I yeah, this movie I haven't seen Campion. She did uh, Top of the Lake, a series with Elizabeth Moss uh, for a few years. I didn't I haven't seen that yet, but she's incredibly well respected. I, the piano was a great film. Uh and I absolutely love this movie okay. and this is going to be a hard challenge for a okay. number of reasons and i yeah. hope you watch it okay. i hope you like it but yeah. i'm eager to hear what you think so for next week the power of the dog with yeah. benedict cumberbatch challenge Jesse Clemens, and kirsten dunst yeah. challenge accepted looking forward all to right it. okay so we will be back next week hopefully i won't get another two and a half feet of snow <laughs> let's hope not <laughs> let's hope not and we'll release the uh, next episode on time uh, again, everyone, thank you for listening. Thank you, Arco, for uh, mentioning a little short story oh, of mine. Man. I really appreciate no it. No problem. And uh, we will see you next time on Movie Challenge Accepted. Take care, folks. Take care, folks.